Hey there, rock and roll podcast fans. This is Mike Hoban. Welcome to Rat Tales, the podcast that brings you the music and stories of the Boston rock scene that grew out of the mid-70s at the Rat and some of the other hellhole joints, each with their own sick charm. Good afternoon, and welcome to Rat Tales. Our guest today is Tim Jackson. He's an actor, a filmmaker, and most importantly for Rat Tale listeners, drummer extraordinaire for a number of bands in the 70s and beyond, most notably Tom Rush and Boston breakout band Robin Lane and the Chartbusters. Welcome to Rat Tales, Tim. Where am I? <laughs> Where am I? What am I doing here? The, the <laughs> Thanks, Mike. The studios at Medford High. <laughs> State-of-the-art studios. They're beautiful studios. And, and there, I made actually. a film with... Uh, Mike here, yeah. He's, uh, which you can talk about if you want. There's some music things, so we probably won't. Actually, yeah, Tim and I, uh, the way that Tim and I ended up getting <laughs> together for this, uh, this, this afternoon is um, uh, Tim did a great movie called Radical Gestures about just one, just uh, what's your synopsis of that? Well, it's about, uh, it's, it's a profile of 11 hoaxers, or hoaxers as people call them, but they're hoaxers. Uh, Alan Abel. Um, Zug. John, John Hargrave. John, Hargrave, John Hargrave, yeah, who did who I work with. Which is a, one of the best. It starts the movie because it's so great. The Michael Jackson hoax. Yeah. Right. And kind of social experiments. I've been fortunate over the years to uh, find a dedicated team of very funny improvisational comedians and writers and generally crazy people who uh, work with me and help me carry out many of these pranks and stunts. We did one prank where we orchestrated uh, a public appearance of Michael Jackson here in Boston 
while he was living in Bahrain. So we pulled together this entourage of people. Moses Blumensteel, who, a tall, lanky man who looks nothing like Michael Jackson, played Michael Jackson. We had hired um, a small Hispanic midget to play his son, uh, and we thought we would put the midget under a blanket, just like Michael Jackson's kids. And we had a complete entourage. to the car. Everybody, this is the real deal. And I played his handler. I was dressed in a suit and tie uh, with a clipboard and a little earpiece, and I walked around uh, looking very important in managing the great Michael Jackson. People are much more likely to believe in a hoax or a prank if there are many people working on it together as a team. So on the big night of the hoax, it was very exciting. We were at the Fairmont Copley Plaza Hotel. Happens everywhere, doesn't it? Insane. Anybody ready to have a great night out? Bean Town. And then a completely coincidental thing happened. Gladys Knight was actually going to be at the hotel performing a big charity fundraiser. So, dressed as the handler, I went to the main press person in charge of the Gladys Knight concert. I said, Michael Jackson's going to be in town. He would really love to uh, come and uh, watch the show, if there's any way we can get him into the uh, concert. And, of course, at the name Michael Jackson, everybody jumps into place. Everybody wants to make this happen. They gave us a private balcony area where we were allowed to view the concert from our own sectioned off seating. Beautiful seats. This was a $10,000 a plate charity fundraiser that they ushered our entire entourage in for free. They were waiting on us hand and foot. The woman came up to me and she goes, can we get you anything else? Does Mr. Does Mr. Jackson require anything? And I said, a bowl of nuts. Just the first thing that came to my head. And like five minutes later, they show up with this enormous bowl of nuts. And I thought to myself, being a celebrity is the easiest fucking job in the world. The next day, it was on the front page of the Boston Herald. All the newspapers, all the news stations reported that Michael Jackson had showed up at the Gladys Knight charity concert. It is the biggest thrill to pull off one of these hoaxes. It's just enormously fun. Your adrenaline is pumping. Your mind is racing. You're trying to think of all the different things that could go wrong or could happen at any minute. And it's just, it's the biggest rush. It really is like trying to rob a bank. 
It's like the legal version of trying to rob a bank. Nobody gets hurt, nobody gets stolen from, but you're trying to somehow break into the system. It's very exciting. You have to see the movie. <laughs> it's online, you can get it. But And then also uh, Bread and Puppet Theater, The Living Theater, um, the Is Billboard he, were Liberation. Were What's that? The Yes Men weren't in that, were they, or were they? No, I didn't do the Yes Men or a guy named Joey Skaggs, because Joey Skaggs is a real state-of-the-art hoaxer. He's okay. done incredible things. He actually has his own movie out called The Art of the Prank. And the Yes Men have two movies out, and they're extraordinary. Yep. So I was doing kind of, not second level, but things that were a little more uh, grassroots, a little more political, well, they're all political, but a little more uh, grassroots and under the radar or more theatrical, like right. Bread and Puppet and Living Theater. And I just thought they deserved to be part of that continuum of political um, street theater and pranks or whatever you want to call them. Yeah. So I actually introduced Tim's uh, movie in character as a uh, right-wing evangelical Christian. Oh, my God, um, that's right. <laughs> that's how Tim and I met. So a couple of weeks ago, I'm uh, <laughs> Tim and I go to a... Uh, uh, I, I don't know, it's, um, it's supposed to be a musical theater, but it was not particularly musical or theatrical, to best I recall. No, we don't want to badmouth the yeah. efforts made by the great Region Theater. No, no, I love the Region Theater. Yeah, it's great. And I, I'm friends with the guy who did the show, yeah. so yeah. I don't expect him to listen It's tough. To the first night of a one-man show yeah, is hard, exactly. hard to get really, your really rhythm hard. going. Yeah. Uh, but then we decided you know, that we should, uh, we should bring him on this you know, based on his career, and, uh, and I've known Tim for a while. And I also know Tim through uh, the, um, the band The Time Forgot, which I've seen many, mm. many times over the years since, what, the 80s? I started that band in, like, uh, 1984 with Peter Hoffman, who I'd worked with through the 70s. And uh, at the time, there were no, there were really any cover bands like that. People did Top 40 or something like that. But I, I had been, you know, traveling for so many years, and I, I wanted to get back. I wanted to do filmmaking. I wanted to teach. I wanted to get a W-2 for a while, get some 401k going. And so I, you know, I got a master's and then started the band The Time Forgot, kind of simultaneously. And my kids were born. And, and my parents died. And I bought a house. It was a heck of a time. Oh, that. And I thought if I can get through this, I'll be okay. But that was a long time ago. But the only band that was out there like that was um, Sha Na Na. And I thought, so Sha Na Na is doing 50s. It's really popular. Everybody likes the 50s. Why isn't anybody doing the 60s? We can play circles around that with the best guys I know. And Peter Hoffman, who I'd worked with so much, can play anything. Called him first, and then eventually Richard Gates, who I was in a band, The Young Rationals, one of my favorite bands, and Larry Ledecky, who auditioned me for Tom Rush. So these were my you know, favorite guys, and they were all willing to do it. I said, look, well, we'll learn one song a week. I got a wedding we can play in June. And it's like a bowling league. You don't think we got, I'm not starting a band. Let's just learn these songs, see what happens. And as soon as we played, people loved it. And we had a Best of Boston award in two years. And 35 years later, we're still doing it. We still get sold out. There's a band <laughs> called uh, Ultrasonic Rock Orchestra. That yeah, sure. What they do is they cover the Who, the Beatles, right. and they've got 10 singers that also play instruments. And they, they, they play at the region frequently. Lenny and I actually had a band. What we did is we covered punk classics only you know right. and then we um we covered like the peter dayton band we covered the atlantics we covered uh nervous eaters you know That's songs great. that needed to be heard again mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. and we we had some really talented people in the band well this was the band that time forgot so we were doing like enter the young by the association oh, really bad song nobody's ever heard and then i realized after a while that um a lot of the songs that we might play nobody could remember anyway 
because it had been, if I started, it would been it had been 20 years. Now we've been together 35 years. So, uh, you know, no, these are the songs everybody's forgotten for sure. Yep. So when we play, we get an older crowd now, I will, I will have to admit, but um, now we get the kids of those older crowd too. And well, second marriages and third marriages, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and grandkids. And grandkids, <laughs> and grandkids, exactly. <laughs> but we're still, still cranking it out, you know, I still feel good. So what we're going to do is what I like to do anyway. I like to just talk a little about you and, you know, and, and your influences and stuff like that. But uh, so the first thing, you know, you know, we want to talk about what shaped you musically. But, um, you know, when you were a kid, the first, what you wanted to do was to be an actor. And um, if you want to talk a little bit about that. And, uh, and then you're, I wrote uh, in my notes, you're no stranger to showbiz. You're actually in the Merv Griffin's quiz show. <laughs> but why don't we talk a little bit about, you know, how you started off, um, you know, be wanting to be an actor and how you ended up uh, becoming a really? musician because by high school you're by high school you're 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 all in on music yeah well it was only because uh, all i wanted to do was act so i used to get all these lead parts in elementary school productions i'd hustle my way into them and but by junior high there was no organized theater so i just thought well you know uh, where are the girls just like everybody, so I started, I started playing, I started playing, you know, and I uh, played in the band and the orchestra and learned to read, did all my rudiments, did all that stuff, and then got kicked out of the orchestra for fooling around, and in the band, I carried the bass drum in the Memorial Day Parade, and I thought, this is not for me, and finally I was asked to be in a band by some older guys in college, and then I was, then I was off, but that was because I couldn't do theater then. The Merv Griffin thing was just, I was in the sixth grade. And he had, you, you want to hear the story? Okay, I'll, yeah. I'll tell it real fast. But the show was called Play Your Hunch. And it had uh, two couples, and they were guessing like all of those quiz shows. They had to guess which of these three people, A, B, or C, or one, two, three, are the real thing. So they wanted three kids, and they were going to be Romeos to a Juliet in a balcony. And Juliet would say a line, and you would mouth the words back and the couples had to guess which one is really mouthing from Romeo and Juliet so they said okay you're a little actor you're going to be the real Romeo here's you're going to do the balcony scene so I said to my dad okay yeah this is great I'm going to be on TV live TV Merv Griffin quiz show uh what's the balcony scene he goes well it's but soft light through yonder window breaks it is the east and Juliet is the sun arise for sun and kill with the enemy is new who's already sick and pale with grief that thou art made her far more fair than she be not thou made she I could do the whole thing still wow I get to the show and they say, you have your lines. I go, yeah, but soft light through. Yeah, well, hold on. Those aren't the lines. She's going to say this, and you have to respond, alack, there lies more peril in thine eye than 20 of their swords. Look thou but sweet, and I am proof against their enmity. She <laughs> don't even know what I'm talking about. So they said, that's what you have to be mouthing. I go, well, nobody told me that. Okay, go into the coat room. We're on in an hour. And I sat there thinking about being on live TV and all my friends watching and the applause lights and the audience and Merv Griffin and the other kids and trying to memorize it's like, no way. <laughs> so they, they guess, you know, they, the couple, one, they, we do our thing, you know, and mouth back best I can. One couple, couple guesses the first guy. Nope, that wrong guy. Second couple guesses me. Merv Griffin comes up and goes, so what lines were you saying, young fella? And I go, lack the lies more... In their eyes, uh, apparel and, and, and swords and, and it's like I'm making shit up. And uh, he goes, well, okay, but that's probably the real guy. So that was it. And then they, then they like to interview the, the kids because that was the cute part of the yeah. show. So they said to the kids, what do you want to be? First kid says, a fireman. Other kid says, you know, a policeman. So what do you want to be? I said, I want to be an actor. 
oh, oh really? He says. And the kid next to me goes, yeah, in monster movies. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know this kid again. But I, I said, yeah, in monster movies. I love Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. That's actually what I want to do. And he goes, really? I said, yeah, and I memorized something for today, and you wouldn't let me do it. And he goes, you did? What's that? And he goes, but software light through yonder window breaks. It is these. And I just started into it. And they, to shut me up, applause lights. The applause lights go on and the applause happens. Oh, that's funny. That so, was my moment in the spotlight with yeah. Merv Griffin. And you get your first dose of like uh, high energy, yeah, you know, high, uh, high exposure yeah, uh, attention. Like that, that's right? awesome. <laughs> so, um, so let's get a timeline here. So um, you, the other story that I found really interesting that I found on your bio is that you actually were at the show when, um, uh, when the Beatles played on Ed Sullivan for the first time. Right. Um, my girlfriend at the time was her best friend was my best friend's girlfriend. So two girlfriends, two guys and her, uh, I found all this out afterwards. How old are you? I'm 72. No, 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 no. How old um, were you? I at was the 72 time? then. And right now, <laughs> 150 years old. You look, you look good for 150, Tim. <laughs> I had to give Botox that away. Works. How old was I? I guess I was, uh, what is that? 63? 64. 64. They were, oh, Kennedy had just been assassinated, yep. then it was 64. So I was the 13 and a half. Okay. Jesus. Wow. I haven't thought about that in a long time. Um, so, yeah, uh, and, and it turns out her, f uh, my best friend's girlfriend's father was an ad man for Ed Sullivan. So we had four tickets, and he said, you kids want to see the Beatles? And we go, yeah. And, I mean, everybody was super jealous about it, and it just didn't. You know, I didn't see any crowds outside. I mean, somehow we got into the theater. I don't remember any chaos or anything like that, except that before the show, if somebody saw something in the in the you know the wings there um, move at all, somebody would point, and the whole place would start screaming. So Ed Sullivan comes out before the show goes live. The set was very blue. When I think that, everybody thinks black and white. I think all oh, blue set with grays and blues. He comes out and he said, "If you kids don't behave." I'm going to, I'm, I'm not going to bring the band out. <laughs> That's, is this the Ed Sullivan show or the high school principal? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? So, and then they came out and uh, the screams went up and, and I went to my best friend. I said, let's scream as loud as we can, see if we can hear ourselves. We screamed the top of our lungs. We couldn't hear our own voices at all. So occasionally the screams would die down and the Beatles would come up again and, um, you know, that was it. Yeah, it was, yeah. So did that have any influence? So I know you started <laughs> playing in high school bands, right? So what, um, you, so you said you were, you were in a high school band and you guys ended up opening for the Young Rascals at one point, right? Is that, was that your high school band? Yeah. Or was that the one just after high school? I can't remember. No, that was my, my high school band was called the, um, um, well, first it was the Better Habs. That was a, that was a college band that I was asked to be in. It was called the Loved Ones. The loved ones, okay, yep. The loved ones, yeah, and uh, and we had a, a manager who was um, just an entrepreneurial character named Dick Sandhouse, and he uh, he managed our band. He wanted to manage our band. He put all this publicity material together and stuff. And uh, while you're in high school, while I'm in high school, <laughs> yeah. And so he brought the Rascals to the high school auditorium, and he said, "Well, you know, my band's going to open for them." And so ah. we opened for the Rascals. And Dino Danelli had been my hero, basically. Uh, I mean, I learned to He's the lead singer of the Young Rascals. He's the drummer. He's the drummer. Oh, okay. Yeah, so all drummers will know Dino Donelli. Okay. He sat up perfectly straight, and he had this, this killer twirl 
Uh, you know, I know all drummers are twirling, but and he would he'd hit the snare drum and then he'd shake it off to the side like this between beats because he was like a ma machine, and he had this face that he always had on, you know, and he'd shake it. And I thought he was twirling with his left hand, so I learned to twirl real good with my left hand. <laughs> Most people twirl with the right hand, but that was my idea. So I shook hands with Dino Donnelly, and I never forgot it. it was great. And then we opened for them again uh, at the Bushnell Auditorium in Hartford with the Wild Weeds. Who's the Wild Weeds? Wild Weeds uh, was, um, um, they were a Connecticut band. The drummer was blind. Al Anderson was the guitar player who ended up with NRBQ. Uh, great, great band, the Wild Weeds. So it was um, my band, the Wild Weeds, and then the Rascals. But the guy who put on the show, who managed my high school band, later got me in the music business after the college years. Um, but he also brought, and this is legendary, legendary, he brought, he wanted to bring Eric Clapton to the high school. And he just went into Sid Bernstein, who manages the Beatles, who was running all these things in New York, because I grew up outside of New York in uh, Connecticut. Yep. And he said, you know, can we do this? And he goes, well, you're just a kid. And he goes, yeah, but I'm managing these bands. I got it all together. I'm going to do this concert. So he said, all right, we'll get, uh, we'll get Eric. Called him back later. He said, Eric left the band. He's not playing in the Yardbirds anymore, the band we were going to bring over. And uh, so this guy, Dick Sandhouse, said, oh, okay, but well, well, maybe we'll just take the Yardbirds, but you still have to give me Eric Clapton. So he got the Yardbirds to come to the high school and play a concert in the high school auditorium. <laughs> and it was with Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page. And I got, you know, I went in the boys' room, as they would call it, smoked a big joint. What was I, 16, 17? And um, sat right in front of Jimmy Page with his mutton chops and his Edwardian suit and Jeff Beck looking completely bored over on the going, and they were using my band's sound system. That's how rough it was. And Keith Ralph is swinging the mic around and we're saying, you know, hey, hey, mister, that's like our, our equipment. Could you like I not do that? I paid $19 for that. <laughs> yeah. The opening act was the chain reaction with Steve Tallarico, who became Steve Tyler. Jesus Christ! So there, you know, that was uh, that was what he was doing. He brought he brought uh, the Yardbirds in, and then later he said, "You still owe me Eric Clapton." So he brought in Cream, and then after that he brought in Sly and the Family Stone, and they played a dance afterwards. He brought in the Doors. This is your high school. This is the high school. Is this it, like a snotty rich kid's high school? No, it isn't. No, it isn't. He was just really. Um, I mean, yeah, the, the high school was well funded, but it didn't cost much because he convinced them that. The, the way he did it was to convince them that they needed to go out and play for kids before they did national tours. And now Connecticut, this Westport, Connecticut, is very close to New York. Just send them out there. There will be no pressure at all. Yep. And so he got everybody that way of doing it. And then later, he did was so successful that they asked him, uh, we've got this artist, Joe Cocker, coming over, and he's real nervous about, and you, you've been really good at getting these bands, you know, adjusted and stuff can you help him with this next concert and he goes all right but where is it And he goes well it's going to be in Woodstock New York we're going to have to fly you in with a helicopter <laughs> so he flew in with a helicopter with Joe Cocker to keep him you know keep him cool when he performed at Woodstock and this is the kid who you knew for your this manager one was of my a high peers. school kid yeah, absolutely oh my god that's got it but that's, that's not even the, the main thing kid, that's not even the main thing he did I remember I was having lunch with him one day and he told me that um he noticed that at Woodstock, how the speakers just radiated over this, uh, you know, this vast horizon of people. And he had remembered that when he was at the World's Fair, that he had seen this demonstration of a thing called laser lights. Oh, yeah. And they would just go 
and they would never stop. And he said, why couldn't you do lighting what you do with sound? So he started a really successful laser light show company, and they did all the foreigners light shows. He still lights Grand Central Station with laser beams on New Year's Eve. <laughs> wow. But that's just part of his business. I mean, he's an entrepreneur. He's also. quite a character. Um, a really, really gentlemanly, sweet guy. And the Yardbirds came over to his mom's house. He said, would you buy boys like tea? Because they couldn't get, they, they, <laughs> their train wasn't ready or whatever. So the, he had tea with the Yardbirds after the show. Yeah. And he ended up, um, you know, getting me back into the business after high school. I mean, after college, because he said, uh, yeah. So that's what, so you're, so you get out of high school, and then you decide, since you are an actor at heart, um, you decide to go to what to uh, Ithaca? Ithaca College. Yeah, yeah, Ithaca College to become an actor, and then you hang around there for a little while, and then you get dragged back into the music business, right? With what Benefit Street? Yeah, Benefit Street in Rhode Island. Yeah, I mean, I, I really loved being in college. I wasn't like a, a scofflaw or anything like that. Um, you know, I worked with Daniel Berrigan, um, Trial of the Catonsville Nine. Um, on, was a famous protest play that Daniel Berrigan, the great, you know, Catholic priest. Um, anti-war activist. Um, but I was flying, yeah, I got, I got asked by somebody who had known me in high school to play in Benefit Street, uh, Rob Carlson, who's a great songwriter. And um, so I, I did that, you know, I just, only one year I ever had off since I started playing, literally, and that was my first year of college. And then I got into a band in college, which is actually a great band, uh, called Abraxas, before the Abraxas album. And that band had in it Larry Hoppin, who, uh, was the guy who sang Still the One, Orleans. Oh, really? Yeah. So he was fabulous. So our band was great because he was an incredible guitar player, a great organ player, majored in trumpet at Ithaca College, and he could sing like Stevie Winwood. So we could do anything. And that band was fabulous, but it was still a college band, and the other band looked like it could have a record contract, so I, I left. So tell us about Benefit Street, because I know you get some pretty good <laughs> stories with that, too. Um, that's the one you're talking about, right? Uh, that band with Larry Hoppin was called Abraxas, but when it, I left yeah. for the band in Rhode Island, that was, yeah, that was called Benefit Street, named after the famous Rhode Island cross street called Benefit Street. And, um, yeah, uh, you know, the, the, they were ho hoping, we had a manager, they had a manager, they were doing all of this. I was just flying back and forth between Ithaca and Rhode Island every weekend while I was in college. And... Um, that's when I met my wife. She saw me playing in my college band. I said, and, and her boyfriend introduced me. He said, this is Tim. He's like a really cool guy. I just cast him in The Odd Couple, and, and he's got a great band. And she goes, oh, I'd like to meet him. And I saw her, and I went, hmm, she should be my girlfriend. <laughs> and here we are, you know, 50 years later. <laughs> well, that's why you join a band. <laughs> yeah, that's why you join bands. Exactly. But anyway, yeah, so Benefit Street was real good, and we had a manager, and he had a contract that was just kept pending on roulette records. Uh, and it never, it just never panned out. I, I'm not sure why. Um, we, we worked hard. We did a lot of gigs, opening for B.B. Um, King a couple of times and the Chambers Brothers. That was fun. At Wellesley College for Cham the Chambers Brothers, and there was a review of the show in the black um, college paper that said, this band Benefit Street was pretty good opening for uh, Chambers Brothers, uh, especially the drummer. 
who despite his cultural deprivation, played a good <laughs> set of drums. I just always loved that. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate despite that. Your I am definitely white, yeah. <laughs> you open for like Grand Funk and the, Stoo the Stooges too, right? Yeah, there was a place called The Jail in Providence, a legendary club there, a stinky old club, one of those great rat kind of places. And uh, everybody played there. Neil Young had just been there. And, uh, and uh, I said, you know, open a pair of band called The Stooges. And I listened to the record. It was just roaring no noise. Now it sounds pretty good. I mean, Eggy's I, I, pretty amazing. Um, I'm a huge fan. Yeah, yeah. And so we 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 played, and then we and then Iggy comes in, and he's sitting in a fur coat in the middle of summer, wrapped in a fur coat. I think he just shot up. He's kind of rocking back and forth. And then they, they it's their turn to go on. And he gets rid of the coat, gets rid of most everything he was wearing goes on stage and it was just complete madness and i remember him coming off the stage <laughs> and coming up to some like you know n nerdy punk fan in the front row some big portly guy going oh i love the stooges taking off his shoe and sock and sucking on his big toe and i thought oh, this is show business that's show business right there <laughs> and that's like pre that's like 1969 1970 right nothing like that had ever been seen yeah yeah that was yeah 19 probably 1970 yeah, and then the Grand Funk thing was again. We had a manager who booked some good shows, and uh, and that was um, at Boston University, and um, David Fry opened, who was the did impersonations of Richard Nixon. Yep, I remember that. <laughs> he was backstage looking not all that happy <laughs> to be opening for a country rock band and um, and Grand Funk Railroad. But Grand Funk Railroad, I was laughing the whole time at, at the audacity of how great they were. You know, now shows are slick. Do you have all these samples and all that kind of stuff? But back then, they were just a band playing. And Mark Farner's hair was down to his waist. He'd drop to his knees, shirtless, and be playing like this to the sky. I mean, I'd never seen anything like that, a show like that. And he'd put his hand back like that, and there was a roadie ready with a harmonica, and he'd whip it up, and he'd be playing solos. And the drummers rock solid back there. And the bass player, like all great bass players, from The Who to Bob Seger, just playing the part, just playing the part and singing to keep everybody in line because <laughs> make sure, because it can get pretty chaotic and the great bass player just anchors it down. It was an incredible show. That was the time when Grand Funk had, um, I think, three-story advertising posters, billboards in Times Square. They're the biggest posters that had ever been in Times Square was Grand Funk Railroad. Now they, now the whole place is billboards, you know. Right. But, but um, yeah. Uh, I was just looking at the, the the lineup of the people that you opened up for in the and uh, in that band uh, benefit was it uh, Benefit Street yeah and it's like Chambers Brothers BB King Grand Funk and the Stooges and it's like and you guys are a country rock band that's yeah, a, pretty much. That's, that's, it was a mix and match at that point yeah a lot of comedians used to open for bands you know uh, you, a lot of the old comedians used to open for. Used to open oh, Carlin and all those guys. Yeah, yeah, especially Carlin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But Carlin had that, He particularly during the 60s and the early 70s and stuff like that, when he had that whole counterculture stuff going right, anyway. Right. And he was always going to be anti-war and all that. And that's when bands actually bands actually gave a shit about what was going on in politics. I don't know if necessarily that's the case now. but um, I think they go out in a different way now. Yeah. You know? It's become... Then it, music was very, it was, you know, revolutionary. You were trying to toss off a lot back then now you're trying to be commercially viable right um, right and you know. to the detriment of i was just down in florida and i had commercial radio on because i usually I, don't listen, I usually only listen to college radio so i just whatever comes on comes on 
and I was down in Florida, and there's, you know, there was, I couldn't find a station like that, so I just was listening to commercial radio, and I go, oh my God, I feel bad for young people growing up. It's just awful. You know, I, I don't, I, I, I have to disagree. I can't say that I know everything that's going on, but there's, there's so much great um, black music now that's r super political and really um, taking up causes that, that white musicians weren't taking up. Okay. Like poverty, disempowerment, crime radio? in the streets. Oh, I don't even know what commercial radio is. Okay, like I, honestly, I said, I was, I was listening to commercial radio. Uh, and we, yeah. I grew up, commercial radio, when we were younger, like during the 60s, I mean, you got a really eclectic blend of, um, of uh, music, I thought. I mean, there's a lot oh, of crap, too. Oh, I for mean, sure, yeah. You know, uh, yummy, 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 I got love in my tummy. Right. I mean, that's, you know, not exactly, um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they had bubblegum. It was called yeah, bubblegum yeah, music. Yeah, it was called yeah. bubblegum music. Yeah, yeah, Lenny used to play in a bubblegum band. But, um. But yeah, so oh, just oh, I want to make one more comment. So last night you and I were talking. You said you almost got signed to Roulette Records, and yeah. I said like, I said why does that ring a bell? Because I had records that had Roulette on it, and I, it was Tommy James and the Shondells. Oh, right. That's what was on it, and then also yeah. um, uh, Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers were on there. Count Basie was on there. Uh, a ton of people were on there, but they were mafia connected, and they were out of New York, I guess. Yeah, they were. I mean, there was. Um, I mean, you can read the Roulette story, but but there's some unsavory things going on with Roulette Records. So maybe it's better you <clears throat> didn't get signed. <laughs> I don't know. You know, our our manager owned record stores, and. Um, record you know and payola and record stores and radio stations and payola and the industry a lot of stuff was unsavory and tied up we'd play clubs in providence we'd go in and we'd say uh, does okay, providence well, have a mafia problem oh <laughs> so we go play these clubs right <laughs> we play these clubs and we say uh so we're on at 10 o'clock you gotta go oh, i know you're on nine o'clock we go yeah but the contract says mister the contract says 10 o'clock you go you guys are on at nine o'clock yes sir <laughs> we played this one place in New Hampshire, the Hillwinds, and we got the finest steak and lobster tails every night for dinner. They were hijacking trucks, you know, and, and they needed to legitimize the club. So I hope I'm not going to get hit up for saying this about the Hill. I don't think it's there anymore, but yeah. whatever. You know, they needed to legitimize the club, so they had bands in. They didn't care if there was anybody there or not. They were super nice guys, you know, but we were an act to cover the fact that they were probably – you know, um, you know, whatever you money through money the, laundering, money laundering and stuff like that. And there was so there was a lot of that. I mean, you'd find a good Italian restaurant in Providence at that time by who had just gotten hit. You know, uh, they just offed so and so. It's oh, that's got to be a good place. We'd go there for dinner. <laughs> it's safe now. They already yeah, they yeah. already did their hit. The Providence was crazy back then. But there's all that. Plus, there was the whole uh, it was a real heavy hippie scene back then too. That's really? In, in yeah. Providence? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, Brown, Brown. University and, and RISD. Yeah, oh, RISD especially. Brown School of Design. Yeah, so there was a lot of um, creative anti-war stuff going on back then. And, uh, you know, the talking heads were back. I remember seeing David Byrne playing there because I think he was um, – and I remember Martin Mull uh, was playing there because he had been at Rhode Island School of Design. So he was just starting his act, Marty Mull and his Fabulous Furniture. And he was really funny, and I always remember one night he was playing. So he was Alan, a folk guy, right? Martin Mull. Martin Mull is now. Well, he played a guitar. No, no, I know Martin oh. Mull is. Yeah, he did. Um, uh, what was it? What was that? America Tonight was the name of the show. Oh, uh, Fernwood Tonight. Fernwood Tonight. Yeah, which yeah, was, that's and then what, it became America Tonight. I think that's right. Maybe did. Yeah, but he also did Mary Hartman. Mary Hartman. Yeah, yeah. Really want to get into that stuff. Yeah. And uh, I, I worked with this bass player who had been in his band, so we got to go to his house in Connecticut when he used to live there before he became a Hollywood guy. And um, he's a great artist. I mean, at RISD, he was a great painter. 
Oh, really? Yeah, great painter. And the first record is so good, so good. I bought, I think I bought five copies of it and gave them away for presents because he was smart, smart. But he, but he, he played a guitar. He played an acoustic played guitar, guitar, right? Wrote songs. He could paint. And when he did Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, which was one of my favorite shows, I went, wow, he's making it. The guy is making it. And then he did Fernwood Tonight, and he was so funny. And it was such a great show with Happy Kind and the orchestra. And yeah, all that. yeah. So good. And then he became, you know, Dean, was Dean Jones of the Disney movies who always played the father. I think Marty Mull took that over a little bit. He became like the cynical dad guy in a lot of these movies, you know. He's a real, he's, he was a real talent. But one night, Allen Ginsberg walked in to his show. And he said, oh, this is for Alan. And he played a song that he'd written called My Fabulous Faggot Shoeshine Cowboy. <laughs> and, and Ginsburg just, like, walked out. <laughs> yeah, Marty Mull, you know, he was, he was great. Boy, it, but if you can ever find that first record, Marty Mull's first record is just the best. best. Recorded in Boston at, um, at uh, a, a studio that used to be on um, Newbury Street. And actually, Benefit Street recorded there with Marty Mull Engineering, by coincidence. He was a sound engineer, too? He, uh, he could do everything, yeah. So he was sound engineering at, I think it was called Intermedia Studios on on, um, on Newbury Street, uh, the last block of Newbury Street. And it was later bought by the Cars. It became their studio. Yep. And then it was bought by Sheldon Mirowitz. I think he were, used it, who was the guitar player in a band I was in later on. And he had a great, um, you know, movie business of soundtracks i think he was doing then so <coughs> yeah you go from uh benefit street yeah we're, we're all over the place but uh we'll it's all part of the history it's you know? all part of the history burning, well, yeah. they're burning embers of my past right <laughs> well the other thing that we left out is that your brother i mean you know the the, the talents in the family and the music connections uh your brother used, was a writer for sweet potato magazine no, i remember right. that when i was a kid that was in the 70s right it was a rock yeah, and roll magazine right. yeah. that was out of portland maine but then it mm -hmm. was in boston and i think they went to minneapolis or something like that yeah so. yeah he wrote for that he, he's a huge record collector so he's got a vinyl collection an entire room of vinyl and he still goes and sees all these like obscure bands and stuff i um, mean he's essentially our age now but he hasn't given up that obsession with vinyl <clears throat> and my other brother was you know owned radio stations oh really yeah so um so he uh I, I used to be able to do a radio show out of his out of his bedroom because <laughs> he had K1QHV ham radio, and he would have a he would have a, a rock and roll shows out of his bedroom when he was a kid. So and you he, would play records. He'd play records. So he had stacks of old 45s. So at one point, when I was in high school with the, with the loved ones, the remains, Boston's great remains, the band, yep, were from Westport, Connecticut as well. Two of them were, uh, Billy Briggs, and. Um, uh, I shouldn't forget his name. The songwriter. Barry. Barry Tashin, thanks. Yeah. And um, they played a concert at the high school. This was their hometown. And my brother said, you know, I have a copy of their new single if you want to learn it. And we were playing the dance after the concert. So we learned Don't Look Back, their new single. Mm -hmm. And at the concert, they said, we have a new single. Nobody's ever heard this. And they played Don't Look Back. And then the dance afterward goes, goes, we have a we have a version of what they just played, and we played "Don't Look Back." Oh, and they'd be like, "How'd you do that? How'd you learn that song?" So my brother was giving me all these great forty fives because he would getting them somehow for his radio stations. Yeah. You both made your bed. 
So the whole family's kind of musically involved then. Um, well, yeah, well, I mean, I my mean, brothers. Your brothers, yeah, your yeah, brothers. Yeah. So let's move up on some of the, uh, so after, so when does the Night Visitors, when does that come in? Because that, this is a band that you, you talked about, and hopefully Lenny can play some, um, some cuts from them, because I think you gave us an yeah, MP3, um, but... Well, you know, so then uh, then this guy Dick Sandhouse managed these bands, and they were um, the young <clears throat> Dick Sandhouse that got the Yardbirds into. They are, yeah, yeah. Um, and I had been in this group Benefit Street, and then he called and said, "Would you like to play in three acts that are on Columbia Records and be the drummer for all of them?" And I went, "Well, that sounds like a pretty good opportunity." In the studio or uh, in, a gig? in the studio, I didn't know what was going to happen, um, but um, they put us up in a mansion in. Um, in Annandale on Hudson in New York, and we rehearsed in the mansion for this guy whose name was John Paul Jones, a folk singer. Uh, and um, Not John Paul and John Paul Jones. Not the bass player. We need Zeppelin, to make sure we yeah. get that distinction down. He had a, a really warm ba uh, baritone way of singing, and he was a good folk singer, but the record didn't do well, so the other two guys didn't get their contracts. One was Jeff Southworth, who was the best man at my wedding, or my Justice of the Peace wedding before the Catholic wedding I was forced to do. <laughs> um, and the other was uh, um, uh, Jeff, Jeff Lorber. No, wait a minute. Which band was I talking about here? <laughs> I just lost track. Uh, oh, we were rehearsing this guy, John Paul Jones. Right. That didn't do so well. Jeff Southwick didn't get his contract. And Mason Daring was the other contract who became a great film composer and okay. folk singer with um, Jeannie Stahl, Daring and Stahl. He's still a great friend. And, but I, uh, he gave me the opportunity to play on a lot of folk records throughout the 70s and, um, and, uh, and so film soundtracks, yeah, which I was doing pretty regularly until Dave Maddox came in. Dave Maddox, the great drummer from England, moved here, and I think I never did another soundtrack with Mason Daring because <laughs> Maddox is unbelievable. He's a great drummer. Um, now, when you said you were doing the soundtracks, is yeah. this going back to doing the John Sayles movies? Or was that yeah, John Sayles movies. The, the first John one Sales we did movie. was, um, I think Secaucus the first 7? film that Mason did was probably Return of the Secaucus 7. Yep. And we all sat in the living room and just made up stuff for the soundtrack. It was real, real grassroots stuff. And then and then we did uh, Liana and um, uh, uh, the one with the seals. What was that one called? Anyway, it was one about a mythical Irish story of a woman who turns into a seal. My wife did the seal uh, sound. about Ronan. Yeah. Ron, Ronan, Ronan -ish. Ish. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Relative Ronan Ish, yeah. See, I still remember my movies. I just haven't yeah, seen them in go. a while. And one called Limbo, where actually he let me do a, um, a kind of country rap. Ah, sitting in the bar one lat, and sales let me do this. That was fun. It was on the Limbo soundtrack, and the opening track was Bruce Springsteen. Cool. So, but getting back to that Annandale on Hudson, we went in the studio, and the next act in that studio after we finished the John Paul Jones record was Springsteen. So uh, with John Paul Jones, in addition to opening for Mahu Vishnu Orchestra, oh, yeah. and NRBQ at Max's Kansas City, and the Whalers for a week at Paul's Mall, Little Feet for a week at Paul's Mall, this was all with this guy, John Paul Jones, because they were all on Columbia Records. Um, we also opened for Springsteen in a high school auditorium when he was just getting going. So this is like 1972 or three or <coughs> yeah, something like that? Yeah, probably 72. 72. Wow. So those were some great shows. Um, but that, that didn't really work out. But then we started another band, and, in, and we got Jeff Lorber in that band, who's this fusion 
you know, world-renowned fusion player who's still a good friend. <laughs> but the combination of Marty Mole's bass player, Jeff Southworth, the Hall and Oates guy, and Jeff Southworth, the fusion guy, and me, Mr. Rock and Roll, it was a mishmash of styles, and that didn't last. So, you know, I played with a lot of bands through those, those years with Peter Hoffman, who I worked with in the band The Time Forgot. And then at some point, uh, Larry Ledecky, who was also in the band The Time Forgot, called me to audition for Tom Rush. And I got that gig, and, um, and at the same time, I got a gig with Stormy Norman and Susie. Great, great act. Some people may remember Stormy Norman and Susie. Yeah, I do. I remember from, from yeah. the 70s. Boy, that was fun, because she was just you know, of all the people you play with through the years and you see who makes it and who doesn't, in the end, it doesn't really matter. I love just being part of, of, a, of, a, of a unique period of music history. And Susie's one of those people that just should have, should have made it. And I said, Susie, how come you never really, you know, she goes, well, I had my chances, but I think I'd always rather play a club that has sawdust on the floor. I'll never forget that because she's as funky as it gets. And Norman is a genius songwriter, Norman Zamchek and Susie Williams. Um, so anyway, but those, so, you know, Tom's tours, you know, started to end and Susie's so tours you, were ending. When you say Tom's. You, you Tom know, Rush. Could, yeah, yeah, I think we went right past, past the, Tom I, Rush. we rushed right past oh, Tom okay, Rush. Okay, yeah. So yeah, um, you know, Tim was the drummer for Tom Rush for a while in the 70s, right? Yeah, what happened, Tom was, you know, he had been the, the toast of the Club 47 and, and a super. And Club 47, want to explain that? Club 47 was like the legendary folk club in Cambridge. Yep. Where Dylan went to perform for the, you know, some of his first performances. Is that near Passim, or is it? It, well, it's not near Passim. I believe it was out. I can never place exactly where it was, as I went there one time. But it isn't exactly where Passim's Passim's is. But it's essentially the same. Harvard Square. Yeah, yeah. There's a movie about Club Forty Seven, and Tom Rush does most of the narration. Tom also has a movie about himself. It's, it's pretty interesting history. Then there's a book called Mansion on the Hill, which is also about Boston music history, which is really interesting. Um, what period does it cover? The 70s. 70s? Really? Yeah. yeah well, pre-punk, though, right? Yeah, pre pretty much. Pre yeah, yeah, pretty much pre-punk. So it was really, it was really interesting to be, play with, with Tom and Larry Ledecky, and then, it, you know, eventually Peter Hoffman came in, and the bass player was Lee Fox, who has now been playing, I think, for 15, 20 years with Blondie. And he came into Tom Rush's band, having just worked with Yoko Ono. And, <laughs> and, so, and he, was a care, he was a beer drinking maniac. He was so funny. Uh, but what a mishmash of a band that was. You know, it's like, and what Tom was trying to do at that point was he had, done, he had been the legend of the Club 47 in the folk scene, but um, during the 70s, the folk scene was sort of you know, fading. Um, as a phenomenon, so he wanted to put a band together with a rock and roll band, or sort of a rock and roll band, at least electrical, and see if he could revive his career. And we did a record, and he couldn't sell it. And it was it was really good. And I did a I did a, another record at the, around the same time with uh, Jonathan Edwards. Phenomenal oh, really? record, absolutely amazing. I could love to give you a, a cut of from that because it's never been released, and it's really good. And. Um, so I'm sure um, Lenny will be queuing it up at this right at this space on the um, yeah on yeah podcast now. that song I'll give you a really good John Edwards song. Lenny's the master of the drop. <laughs>
But so Tom, that didn't work out for Tom. So we went on, and, and because he's a businessman and a very smart Harvard graduate, Tom Rush, in addition to being a wonderful folk singer, he created the Legend of the North Country Club 47 concerts at um, Symphony Hall for years. So I got on one of those cuts. I did an overdub, overdub on drums because the whole thing was a little ragged. So he said, can you come in and just kind of try to play down the center and make this sound like a real song? And I, I gave you a copy of that if you want to play Driving Wheel. And I did a video for Tom. Uh, a found footage video of Driving Wheel last year during, during the uh, pandemic that Tom loved and he put it on his website, which if you want to show it on the site, I'd love to show that. It's great. It's a fun, a fun video. I'm playing on it. I did the video, you know. I just came up on the midnight special. Hey, how about that? car broke down in Texas Stopped dead in her tracks 
just call to tell you that I love you. And I call to tell you Say much in a phone call, babe. You know how it is. But I called to tell you one short thing. Won't you listen to this?
But anyway, you're talking about the night visitors. I'd rambled a lot because the '70s were a really interesting time for me, playing-wise. And uh, so let's get into uh, in a timeline. So now it's like the probably '74, '75, '76. Uh, no, it, it, the years had passed. There were a lot of uh, times of playing bowling alleys, and um, with which band? With, oh, there was a band called the Splendades. Yep. We used to play jacks. Uh, with in Heidi Cambridge, Metzger, yep. there was a band called Heidi and the Secret Admirers. That was Peter. Oh, I remember them. Yeah, Peter Hoffman and Heidi Metzger. Uh, that was after I left. And um, uh, there, was the that, so there was that band. There was a band called Blue Sky. That was one with Jeff Lorber and Jack Bone and um, Jeff Southworth. Uh, the Spoons, I think, was another another band. There were all those bands. They were all sort of commercial bands. And it was fairly unpleasant. Uh, maybe the best gig we did was New Year's Eve, 1976. I had dislocated my shoulder skiing. And uh, played that night in a sling, flopping my down. Then finally, uh, it, I had it operated on in Bangor, Maine, and a million stories there. But we came back on New Year's Eve, 1976, and I think that was the last year I could stand playing clubs like that anymore. And what what club was that? Would you oh, play? in 1976, we played for the Patriots in a mansion for the Patriots. Really? Yeah, and there were. I won't say there were, I'm not going to say there were drugs, but maybe there were. Yeah, yeah. And, but it was a wild freaking party. <laughs> and it was all, things were getting really strange by 19, that was 78. And so uh, at that point, I, I needed out. So I got the Tom Risch gig. And then when that ended, Storming and Norman and Susie, uh, that, that record didn't work out because they hired Canadian musicians and they didn't know how to play that stuff. So at that point. They're good point, at comedy, but just not that, that brand. Of rock and roll. <laughs> Something, yeah, it was just so stiff. They were all loose and funky. And Susie was, you know, we played a club in Hollywood, Florida at one point. And I remember I came off stage and the owner said, I got to meet with the band. I got to meet with Susie. And so we met, yeah, what is it? And she goes, look, Susie, we appreciate your playing here, but you're not going to keep the engagement for the week unless you put on your underpants. Because <laughs> she used to do fan kicks. And some one night <laughs> the owner's wife came in, it's like, Beaver shot, Whoa. wrong thing, wrong thing in Hollywood, Florida. It was a slick club. So that was Susie. She was a wild one. 
anyway. I just want to get the timeline straight again because <laughs> okay. it's like it's okay. Kind so of a this mishmash, is all this is all seventy seven. So 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 this is like, this is when you're playing with the splendids and the spoons and you're playing at the. We talked about this last night. The Oxford Ale House. I spent a lot of time in the Oxford Ale House until you mentioned it. I just totally eradicated that from yeah. my memory. Yeah. I you had to remind me where it was. It was right in Harvard Square and um. And that was a like a cover band kind of a yeah, um, yeah. Uh, drunk tank, um, but it was fun. I yeah, mean, for I me, think, I think because I was eighteen. Yeah, I think the reason I remember that era, uh, even though it was an unpleasant era to play, because you were having to play commercial music and disco was coming in, and yep. that wasn't really fun for a drummer at that point. Um, the number of clubs that we played at one point, Dick Sandhouse uh, put together a band called Saloon. Great band. And we had a choreographer. <laughs> and he was, and, and my wife and Jeff Southworth's wife were the two lead singers. He was trying to do an ABBA thing. You know, this is Jeff Southworth who had brought all those band in. Now he was trying to put his own thing together. After the Columbia contracts didn't work out with his three artists, he said, well, I'm going to put something together with you guys. With you and Jeff Southworth, Jack Bone from, from uh, Marty Mulsbane and Jeff uh, Lorber. And the two girls out front, and we're going to do these special arrangements, and we're going to do the choreography. And he brought in Bud Prager, who was managing Foreigner, to come see us, to sign us. And he had the whole thing poised. Didn't work out. The band just was not good enough. The girls were not rock and roll singers. Yep. And I think that was just about it for my wife in terms of singing rock and roll. She's a jazz singer. And she has her own band now, um, in addition to being a psychotherapist and all this stuff. But... Um, yeah, so that was, I, I forgot that one. That was really interesting. We played the Harvard Square Theater. Now, you told me a story about you. You said your wife was um, in a band that was, they did a novelty hit. You oh, just yeah. Tell that story real quick. Right. So she was, um, she was still singing, uh, and we had this band when my shoulder was dislocated. And your wife's name is Suzanne Boucher. Suzanne correct? Boucher. Yeah. Suzanne Boucher. She has a band called TVS, okay. an acapella trio with a really good band behind them. They don't play that often, but. Uh, at one point, the original version of TVS, uh, they hired two of the original singers from TVS, my wife and this other woman, to do the touring for a record by Sonny Joe White that was a proto-rap version of uh, General Hospital plots. And, and it's called General Hospital. Yeah, I remember that. And it sold a million copies. Oh, Jesus. So they went out. They had, they had a choreographer, and they did all the dancing, and they wore spandex, and their legs were up to here. And she had her blonde hair. It was super glammed out. And they hired a black couple from New York to fill it out and make it all, you know, show busy and, and good and great singers. And, and you can see a, a clip of it, which you can play if you want on, on the podcast. But it's, it's pretty funny. <laughs> Involved was 
worth so much. Others wanted it like Sally and Hutch. But there's one thing I must confess. Sally was a man who wore a dress. Luke kept his cool. He ain't no fool. He set them both up cold. Well, Sally died. Hutch survived. And no one got the gold. to get Leslie back. Heather's having an insane attack. I'll get Diana Taylor. She's not crazy. Uh-uh. No, never. She just wants to get Dr. Jeff Weber. Jeff wants Annie for his wife. Then he might have to wait all of his life. Just good girls don't. And Annie won't. You all know what I mean. Richard Simmons helps fight blab. Susan's having Alan's baby. No one wants Bobby for his lady. Well, Luke, you got another job. The quartermains are the brand new mob. Laura's the receptionist. What's missing now is the ice princess. Yes, Luke Spencer, please. Diamonds, not gold, are in it this time. Scorpio, the house of Castadine. On and on and on it goes. She never got her gold record, and um, and it was produced by um, H- um, Harry S- Harry Sands. Oh, I'm going to forget his name. He'll never hear the podcast, hopefully. But great producer. He produced the record, and he was the one that actually got me on the Jonathan Re- Edwards record. There's all that stuff. What connected. was the name of the Jonathan record? It was never released, right? Never released. Okay. Yeah. So, so we'll definitely release, cut yeah. off that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to just bring it back in. So one of the things you had talked about, and this is what comes up a lot. So it's the mid-70s, and all these clubs, 
are looking for bands to play, mm. but they're not looking for anybody to do anything original. So all the guys that I've talked to, whether it's like DMZ or any of the bands that are playing the rat, they all wanted them to come in and play Queen covers and things like that. They wanted they wanted cover rock and roll, and you know Led Zeppelin in the late seventies. Like yeah, that? exactly. Yep, yep. Uh, and uh. then what happened? Then that then that was the change. That was when things started to change. And it sounds to me like from a timeline standpoint. Um, even though it's like 78 when you hooked up with the night visitors. So why yeah. don't you tell me about that? And um... Well, I had had my fill of having to ever play Top 40 again. I mean, I was ready to just stop completely and go back to being a great actor. <laughs> actor. <laughs> yeah, right. And, uh, but, but Tom got me out of that. Tom Rushbank got me out of that. And, um, and then Norman and, Norman and Susie. And then somehow um, I was contacted by a guy named Bernie Labello, and his friend Tony Gilroy, who's also a film director and great, great screenwriter now, hugely successful screenwriter, and Bard Richman, one of the, just, what a sweetheart. He passed away recently. He had been in a band called the Road Apples. Yeah, I remember them. Yeah, so Bard was the bass player. He played like Paul McCartney. I mean, he was brilliant. He was a, he was a genius, I think. Uh, and, and Tony is a genius screenwriter. Uh, so this band was a heady band. And Bernie Labello wrote the songs, and they were phenomenal songs. And we had a manager, and he said, you know, I'm going to put you guys together. There was a, a recording studio on Upper Boyles, on Lower Boylston Street right before the turnoff to um, uh, Charles Gate East, where I lived. Uh, and he f financed demo tapes for us, for the Night Visitors. So we created these great demos, and... Um, he said, they're putting a band together called uh, Boston. And you guys sound a lot like that. And so we got to get this out before this band Boston comes out. Oh well, God. that didn't work out so well. But it is still that sort of bombastic uh, arena stuff. But God, his songs were great. You live your life sitting alone in a chair. Watching TV Well, maybe there's something in there You don't know your wife Who's been in your life Who's been in your life Now for 30 years You're not only deaf, you're blind
So where did you play with the Night Visitors? You know, somehow my, my wife sang backup for a lot of the songs um, over on the side there in her spandex um, <laughs> for, the high, for the high parts. And she could remember better than I could. I know we, we played the Paradise several times. Opened for a band called Japan. Oh, yeah, I remember them. We opened for Japan. We played a number of places in New York City, and I honestly can't remember. Those were hazy cocaine days. And, uh, and that was probably not that we were out of control, but our manager was. <laughs> and, and he, um, he over... Someone had to be. It was the 70s. Well, exactly. I mean, it was, it was a blizzard back between 78 and 85, probably. And, um, and uh, I think he just oversold the band, overhyped the band, and it just wasn't happening. It wasn't going to happen. It wasn't... The music was still great, and what we, we ended up doing was Leslie Palmiter from WCOZ, who okay. I'm still in touch with. Wonderful woman, had a show on COZ, and she put out a uh, Sounds of Boston COZ album, um, which is kind of a classic record. Some people still have it. And the Night Visitors were the first song on the first side. She was a real fan of Night Visitors. What song is that? Do you remember? It's called Jody. Jody. Show. 
And I, and I really liked it because it was first, you know, one of the first takes, no overdubs. I'm playing a cowbell with this hand and doing fills with this hand. And it just sounded great. And the other stuff were, I, I gave you one other copy of a song, you know. We did a whole album's worth of stuff. Another thing unreleased, but absolutely brilliant. And so we played a lot of clubs I don't remember. I know we played... Um, Sir Morgan's Cove. I remember that. Now, where is that? That's in Worcester. Okay. That, the Stones played there. That put them on the map. Yeah, maybe that's why I remember the yeah, name. Yeah, yeah. So Sir Morgan's. Worcester. Um, but during the 70s, a lot of those clubs, which I passed over, that I played with those bands, even before Night Visitors, and probably with Night Visitors, were Gladstone's, the Oxford Ale House, Gladstone's. Jack's. Hundreds of times, or maybe dozens of times, yep. Jacks were Bonnie Ray. Gladstones had 35 cent drink night. I used to go in there when in like 1976 or 77. Played there or so many like times, hauling a hammered organ up onto the On, raised yeah, stage. It, it was it was above the dance floor. Oh. Was where the band played. That was bizarre. What a nightmare. And um, that place at the corner that we were talking about earlier, or the corner of Martin Yetis is there now, I think. Oh, no, actually, no, it's right next to where Martin Yetis. Yeah, no, another place open called the Living Room in that spot. It was a club for a while. I don't know what happened. I haven't been there for a long time, but That's right on Commonwealth Avenue and across uh, Great Scots across the street. Yep, play there. Brandy's one. Yep, played Brandy's dozens of times, dozens of times. Jacks in the earliest days played over and over and over again with the with the Splendades. The name, by the way, we were trying to think of a band name. We're sitting in a diner, and I look at the napkin dispenser. Says Splendades. I go, I got a name for the band, Splendades. <laughs> so we the name from a napkin dispenser, and we played. Um, we played Brandy's one, and then we played Brandy's. What's that? What did you say? Splendades came from what? A napkin dispenser. A napkin dispenser. Oh, yeah, it was hilarious. on the name on the napkin dispenser, and I thought that's a great name for a band. Let's play the Splendades, and we played Jacks a lot. That was like a comedy blues band. So we had a guy named Carl Armstrong who wrote hysterical songs and um, a singer named James Griffith, incredible singer, who ended up being an eBay millionaire. He, was the, he, he is the face of eBay now, actually. He's known as Uncle Griff. And this is another whole offshoot. He's still a very good friend. And he, uh, he lives in, in San, San Jose. And he... Um, was in the early days writing letters. He'd given up the music business. He's gay, and he'd lost his relationship, and he was troubled. And he, was, he was writing letters for eBay before they went public, and he was feeling really depressed and walking. He thought he was going to do himself in, and a neighbor stopped and said, James, you look terrible. What's the matter? Brought him to the hospital, gave him some medication. He came back, and then eBay, they said, where have you been? We love the letters you were writing to the people who like this thing called eBay, and he goes, oh, well, I can still do it. Go, okay, well, we'll pay you to do it. Oh, okay, what do you need? I don't know, like 100 bucks a month? And they said, we can pay you a lot more than that. Yeah. So not only did they pay him, but when they went public, they sold him shares for 50 cents a share. So needless to say, he bought a villa in Italy uh, and um, houses all over the place, and now he's still the voice of a radio show in San Jose for eBay. Great, great guy, great singer, great... But he was in the Splendids, and we were all playing jacks, doing comedy with, like, we did the, some blues song where we'd cover the bass player with Silly String. I mean, it was outrageous. And people still remember that band, Splendids. Oh, that's funny. Funny band. 
So, okay, so I just went back again, and now no, we need okay, to go. No, it's, yeah, it's, it's not, not <laughs> I very never linear, tell these not stories. Not very linear today, but isn't it? So the night visitors, even though you guys didn't actually cut yeah, a record, right. got you into where? What was your next band from there? Well, I mean, with that, um, Robin loved that band. Yeah. Every, everybody loved that band. It was a great, great band. And uh, she was looking for a drummer. She had been doing, you know, doing well, and she had gotten um, Asa Brebner and Leroy Radcliffe from Jonathan Richmond's um, uh, Modern Lovers Band, yep. because she Robin is very clever. She wanted the right people to create the image and the sound she wanted to be kind of new wave. And uh, this is all in the movie that I made uh, about her life. And um, got Scott Barinwald from he had been in the Archies <laughs> and other bands. <laughs> he was like a mainstay of the new wave punk, whatever. I don't know the Archies were a real band. He was Archie. Okay. I don't think that's his claim to fame, <laughs> uh, and I can't remember Scott's you know, most significant bands before the chart budget, but she get that. And they still needed a drummer. And uh, she went to see me at uh, Play With The Night Visitors, and she said to my wife, you know, because um, we were all sort of friends, and she said, you know, I'm looking for a drummer. She goes, well, why don't you ask Tim? And he goes, she says, well, I, I don't think he would do it. And she just said, ask him. Because <laughs> I realized the Night Visitors were on a, on a, you know, a plane down. Things were a little out of control. So... Um, so she asked, and I said, yeah, absolutely. So I played with them, and we all got along like a house on fire. I mean, that band got along really great. We had so much fun. So let's, let's, yeah. let's take... So let's that was the Chartbusters. Yeah, thing. but let's talk about the Chartbusters. Let's talk about, like, you get together. You're a Boston band at that point. So why don't you just take us through, since this is the Rat Tales, and, and a, lot of the, tales. a lot of the... This is, you know, based about around the rat, not the rat wow. itself. Okay. I mean, it's just that whole music scene that we talk. We talk a lot about the club and a lot of other things. But since um, since a lot of the footage that I you can see, you see footage of Robin Lane and the Chart Buses playing the rat all the time. Right. It's funny in the movie. There's a picture. Uh, there's a clip of Oedipus getting ready to introduce a band, and he said, "This is the greatest, you know, fucking, uh, you know." Uh, uh, city in the world for rock and roll and all this, but I've seen that clip before, and that's actually he's introducing Barb Kitson, right? And the thrills when he does that, but then it's you know, but but I, I thought it was funny. She it because I had seen the clip before because I'm a big fan of the Bob Kitson and the thrills. Okay, but to be to be correct about it, what he says is the the best effing the best effing city for rock and roll. I don't think he says the best band. Oh no no no! He didn't say the best. No, no, he said the best city. He was okay, clear, so in my defense, yeah. I just wanted to show Oedipus, and that Boston at that time was considered a, 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 a an important place for that music. You know, there's been a lot of people through town in the past six months, and they've all said, they said, hey Oedipus, this is a good rock and roll town and all i say it's the best fucking rock and roll town in the world but i cut out barb kitson only because when i did a test screening of the movie it was just going on too much about things that people didn't understand oh, and you didn't want to go in that direction no I, no I, no i get it no I, yeah. I i i would just say I, i'm probably one of the few people who actually picked up on it because i because i had just incredible. seen yeah thrills was a and, great and, great and band. they were also credited at the end of your film i know which is know, yeah yeah but um but and nervous eaters i mean you know that they would i just love nervous eaters yeah I mean, they were just so good same here yeah so so let's talk <clears throat> about the evolution of robin lane and the chart busters and then the, tell me some stories about uh you know let's talk about some of the stuff that you guys did well i um, wish i could talk directly about the rat but as i've said to you before i i have been done so many different kinds of gigs <laughs> that i never really I, I think 
Robin said me being in the band was like having, you know, three punks and a beach boy. And, and so I was like the odd man out. She liked the way I played and, and you know, and it all, all was fine. But I was never, I never got deep into the scene. I mean, I wasn't really a drinker or drugger. Uh, I wasn't anti anything, but I just, um, I, I had really taken my playing seriously. I had been playing for a long time. And uh, so in that way, the Chartbusters were considered um, pretenders on the scene to a lot of people. Um, because she was, she was as crafty a songwriter uh, as I was serious about playing the drums. So a lot of those drummers weren't necessarily trained or hadn't that much experience, which is good, which yeah. is good. You if know? you're playing punk. Absolutely, yeah. I, I, I discuss this a lot with Hugo Burnham, who played for Gang of Four. Yep. He and I worked together for a long time as teachers at the New England Institute of New Art, and he goes, well, you were always the real drummer. And I always say to Hugo, you know, you were actually doing what I should have done because <laughs> you were rock-solid, imaginative, solid parts laying down what Gang of Four really needed. Um, and Robin always wanted everything faster and faster and faster and everything puts my teeth on edge a little bit but the songs are good people love the band and she consciously put together the sound she wanted which was a a jangly a jangly new wave sound was it punk no of course it wasn't but as bill flanagan says in the movie the definition of punk was very fluid yeah tom petty was called punk yeah most of the stuff that they call punk i mean there was punk was a very short-lived uh, thing as far as I'm concerned, real, I mean, yeah. punk punk, like unnatural acts. Yeah. Or, um, and I, I think some of the best actually happened after we were off the scene. Bob Kitson in the thrills. They yeah, were they, were, they were great. They and were there were a lot punk. of really good, more, more edgy, more true punk bands. Robin was a, was a songwriter from Los Angeles, you know, and she was gorgeous and blonde and could sing like nobody. And, and uh, Asa and Leroy had, you know, come from Jonathan Richmond's and they had a way of playing. Scott was rock solid. I could play all over the place. It was a little too slick to be called punk. And so we got a little resentment for that. But people loved the music So, because Robin was a great songwriter. So so last night when you and I were talking, yeah. I, I need to apologize because I said that you guys weren't. I, you had said that when you play with the undertones, when you guys had gone on tour with the undertones, yeah, yeah. and I said, you know, they were, they were clearly a punk band, the Irish punk band. And and they said they said that you guys were pop, and I was thinking like you guys were pop, or like more like, because I had seen Robin later too, and I'd seen her play more stuff that was almost not almost folky, you right. know, even like when at Asa's um, at the uh, memorial for Asa, yeah, um, so I saw her play something that was softer, <clears throat> but then I watched the movie last night, and I hadn't seen it before, and I forgot what Robin Lane and the Chart Busted really sounded like. So if you want to hear what Robin Lane and the, if you want to hear them kick some ass, the, uh, the I don't want to know live at the rat. Um, just Google it. It's on YouTube. Asa. I don't know who the guitarist is who just rips off a killer lead in that. Asa. All the Asa time. And it just totally it's a it's a great song. And you, you guys are not a pop band. You're not a you're, you're a rock and roll band who knows how to rock and roll. <laughs>
Robin's one of those gifted songwriters that knows how to write a good song. And she could, you know, I, I saw her in the movie. There was a song that she did called Benjamin. It sounded almost like an Amy Mann type song. Well, that was written to her son. Right. When she had to give up her son for adoption. Right. And back in the way before she. 69. Had, yeah. Yeah. Way back then. Say a little prayer for Benjamin Give him all the love you can give He's in a womb Where he was made from love between a man and a woman Oh Spend a little time Set with music of the world Don't let him know His mother couldn't give him all the love he need to grow He'll grow up in just about the way you see Yeah, you guys, you guys are a rock and roll band, absolutely. And 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 then uh, it's funny. I was, so I'm looking at. I was watching the movie. Um, I also saw something that I thought was really interesting. So you guys, you should talk a little more about um, Robin Lane, just the, the evolution of the band and what you did. Because at one point in the movie, they show WBCN's top albums, and the top albums that they have are. Um, this is in order: Sticks, Adam Ant. Who, the Who, and Robin Lane. That's one through four on hmm. what was going on in 1979 at the BCN's oh, top wow. album list. Okay. And I'm like, that is a weird list. But you guys were, you know, you guys were, uh, you, you guys were playing a lot. So you, when you started playing, when you came into the band, what happened? And then just give us a little um, history of what happened in terms of the band. I mean, you guys weren't together that that long, so. No, I guess not. I mean, Robin Three, was. Three, four years. Well, we continued into the 70s. No, you um, started in the 70s and continued I mean, so we continued into the 80s. Yep. Through the, so, so we were, and then we even did a, a CD. You'll have a song there from in like 2010 or something like that. So we were always friends and we were always getting back together here and there. But the core of the band with Leroy Radcliffe, yeah, it was probably about three three years maybe. Yep. Two, Two years, three years. I don't but know. when you were playing the Rat, and when you were playing Boston, yeah. Boston venues in the Paradise and right. places like that, so yeah. 
And then, then you guys hit it big. Uh, for those who don't know, um, one of their great songs, um, one of you know their signature song, uh, "When Things Go Wrong," which is also the name of Tim's movie, that was the 11th song ever played on MTV. So they were making it, and like I said, Robin had the look, um, and you know she was a very, very attractive blonde, and it's, it's a, it's a good video. I can talk about it actually in terms of the video because what, what she did was when she put the band together <clears throat> she said um, she wanted to obliterate melody that was the punk impulse uh, and that's what she claims I wanted to obliterate melody so being as crafty as she was as a writer she wrote songs that drove hard rather than were melodic like 
folk-based. But she couldn't quite give that up. So there is, for instance, a song that I, I gave you called For You. It's a 6-8 ballad. It's absolutely gorgeous. So she still was doing some of that, but she was consciously writing for the scene, for the, whatever punk was. And again, it wasn't totally definable, so some of it would come out new wavy, Tom Petty-ish. Some of it would come out like punk. Uh, and we were just waiting to get a record contract because <laughs> everybody was looking at her. She could sing better than anybody, and she was absolutely gorgeous. She had the cachet of Jonathan Richmond's guitar players. So we waited and we waited, and we were... Um, looked at most closely by Planet Records. He produced Ringo's album named just uh, Richard Perry. Okay. Richard Perry, who had done Ringo and had done you know a lot of classic records, and Warner Brothers. And Richard Perry came, and he said, you know, I, I would like to sign the band. And he, uh, can I come watch the band? And uh, our, our manager, Mike Lembo, said, yeah, well, they're playing this place called The Rat. And Richard Perry, he said, you know, don't dress up. It's a pretty grimy club. And he goes, okay. Shows up. He's about six foot three. He shows up in a three-piece white suit in a white limousine. Oh, no. In and he rat. comes into the rat. And Price he was, Mitch let him in. Uh, yeah, Mitch let him in. And he said, watch out for this guy. You're gonna, he's British. You're going to know him. And he ended up marrying Jane Fonda, too. He recently passed away. Anyway, he nailed the sound of the band. He said, well, what you got to do is you got to, uh, the drums have to drive through. You need the whole thing to be textured like guitars. Uh, essentially, it, he was describing a Tom Petty sound. And um, he knew exactly what we needed to do. Then we're being, you know, uh, um, you know, looked at by Warner Brothers. And we had to decide, who do we go with? Planet Records and Richard Perry, who understands all this? Or Warner Brothers, and we don't even have a producer yet. But Warner Brothers had the distribution. Mm. And uh, little did we know they were going to be starting MTV. 
So we went with Warner Brothers. And um, they said, where do you want to find a producer? You want to go to New York or Hollywood? So again, we said, well, we'll go to Los Angeles. That sounds like fun. She's from there anyway. Well, that's right. That's right. And they got uh, Joe Wissert to produce it. He had just done Boz Skaggs' Silk Degrees. So he's on, you know. It's a great album. Great album. But it's not a punk. No, no, no. It's not. It's not even a Robin Lane. I mean. Totally. It was totally wrong. And then the album cover they put together of us peeking through the cover of Pink and Back. And what was the name of that that record? I think it was just called Robin Lane and the Chartbusters. Okay. And and, um, that was Warner Brothers' idea of what punk looked like. The slit paper and poking your head through and. You know, Robin never really got control of what she needed to do to create an image for herself. So she was a little bit at the mercy of a manager who was immature. Mike Lembo was in his early 20s. He used to lie about his Big age. Big stocky guy, right? Yeah. Nice guy. Um, but he and Robin were like, you know, oil and water. And, um, and he, uh, so he wasn't making necessarily right choices for her. He was too young. He wasn't in control of her enough. She was very difficult to, to deal with. She was a little on the older side. I think when I did the chart busters, I was 30, an old man. And, uh, and so um, that was a problem. And then they sent these two filmmakers from Los Angeles to do music videos for us. And we went, well, what's a music video? And they said, well, you know, you ne- we might use it somewhere. We don't really know. Um, we'll do this one when things go wrong. And... We've got this idea. We'll put you on a sailing ship, and you're going off to and you're going off to sea with Robin's boyfriend, who was actually not her boyfriend at that point, Leroy. And they put together this cornball narrative video that does so unrock and roll, <laughs> it's embarrassing. And then they said, "Well, we also want to do I, wa- I don't want to know," which was furious, full of energy, and that we did in front of a blue screen. And so, and then they never put anything in, in the blue screen, so it's just playing lip-syncing to the album version um, in front of a blue screen, and that was the whole video. That never even made it to MTV. And uh, so later on, years later, I had made a movie when I was, uh, I think, 13 years old called The End of the World. Oh, God. On Super big 8. Big stakes. You got to have big stakes when you're making a movie. Yeah, time. yeah. Called, and it was with all the all the kids from the neighborhood. And they were all dressed as mutants. And we were firing machine guns and blowing them all away. And we had people being whipped. And it was a terrible thing for a 13-year-old to do. But I still had a... Did your parents get you a therapist after that? <laughs> yeah. My, <laughs> no, my mother used to lock her bedroom door, though. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and so I put that in the blue screen in back. <laughs> So I've got I Don't Want to Know, which is about the death, the murder of Sid Vicious, uh, murdering his girlfriend. Is it really? And Nancy Spudgeon. That's what I Don't Want to Know. Robin couldn't handle it. Robin was, uh, in in addition to uh, describing the genesis of the band, she was a born-again Christian. And we knew that. And so if all her songs, I Don't Want to Know, is about I can't process the violence of the world, essentially. Yep. Or uh, I Believe in You. It isn't about a boyfriend. It's about God.
And so all her songs are songs of faith. So she was big on the Christian circus, but circuit, but we never talked about that at all. Um, we were... At what point was she bigger in the Christian circuit? Before? No, during. During? People who knew that. Yeah, she would be in, uh, interviewed by Christian magazines and stuff like that. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. No, it was a real disconnect. Especially with the filthy degenerates at the Rat and with the born-again Christian girl on stage who looks like, you know, um, she belongs. Yeah. And she did. And plus, she, she was a good performer, too. And, um, you know, as, as much as we would misbehave like a regular band should do on the road in all ways, she never did. She was always, um, you know, sober. Well, not sober necessarily, but uh, ne she never, I never saw her do any drugs ever. Um, so I think that, that out of control scene that we were all a part of wasn't difficult for her, but she was, she was an odd match for it. Um, in addition to an odd match for the songwriter, because she was consciously constructing songs without melody and then getting us to pump them up. And it was great. It was great, but it was, it was, it was weird. Um, so anyway, the end of the world on the blue screen seemed to fit my 13-year-old movie of people being slaughtered like a perfect backdrop.
But then, I ne- we never knew it was on MTV. <laughs> until like, that? Until 10 years later, something like that. Somebody said, you guys, you know, you guys were on MTV. And I go, we were, what, what, how? They said that When Things Go Wrong was the 11th song on MTV. And I turned it on and I looked at their archive and I went, wow, I didn't know that. You know, it's interesting that you said about Robin, uh, uh, as a songwriter, you said she intentionally... um, Intentionally creating songs for that milieu. Yeah. Fancy word for it. But uh, but you said that she intentionally made them... I'm sorry, I missed that... um, Whatever. Obliterate melody? Yeah, obliterate melody. Yeah. Cause, but the thing it, it I learned from watching uh, the movie last night is that Robin was, like, surrounded by these killer songwriters. I mean, she used to... Be, she spent time in the 60s with um, Crosby, Stills, and Nash and with all these other great... Uh, the guy, her first... One of her first uh, husband, her first boyfriend, I guess, was... Um, first husband was... First husband was the guy who played with Crazy Horse. No, her first husband was... Uh, Andy, Andy Summers, Summers, of, Andy the Summers of the Police. Okay, yeah. yeah. So she's used to being around. I mean, she's a skilled songwriter right. who intentionally did it versus someone who would write a song that was like atonal or something like that because exactly because so it was with intention, not with like, um, not because she didn't understand the how a song should be constructed. It's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. So coming at it as a craft and also coming from a show business family and growing up in Hollywood. I mean, one of her best friends was uh, Sally Fields and they used to go and rifle medicine cabinets and stuff. She was not an angel (laughs) when she was younger. She was a bad girl. Um, And then she was Neil Young's girlfriend for a while and she sang. Oh, Neil Young's girlfriend. Yeah, Neil Young's girlfriend. And she sang on Everybody Knows This Is Nowhere. And you can, uh, round and round, the song round and round. Yep. You can hear on that, he put her on that song, and you can tell right away it's Robin. There's this beautiful uh, voice in the back singing that song with him. Round and round and round we spin to weave wall to us in. It won't. So yeah, so she was she was that was her world, uh, but I think she went a little insane, probably LSD, something like that, and so she committed herself to a place in Pennsylvania. That was she, when she was younger. That's be- way before the chart. Before the chart yeah, busters, before, yeah. yeah. So, um, and she it's all it's all in the movie, and she had a boyfriend yeah. there, and that's when she found. She had a traumatic childhood too, a very traumatic childhood, and all of that. Yeah, uh, you know, growing up too fast around those people. She told me at one point, and you know, I, I don't, I don't know if she stands by this, but at one point, they were looking to sign Joni Mitchell, and Joni Mitchell said, um, "I, I can, you can't sign me if you're going to sign this Robin Lane woman." It was too much competition for another beautiful blonde woman, who could, was a good songwriter, and and it's just a thing. I mean, I, it's totally understandable, 
and there's, there's no comparison between Robin and Joni Mitchell. Right. Yeah. Joni Mitchell is like a jazz artist and right. everything else. But, I mean, that's how close she was all the time. And then when she was with Andy Summers, um, that started, they were writing songs together and all of that. He hadn't been in the police. He was struggling. He had no money. And he never liked the Chartbusters. So um, he just thought it was too pop. He didn't like what she was doing. Really? I think we were offered a gig at Madison Square Garden with the police, and Robin didn't want to do it. These are the career decisions that were not so good. Robin says that never happened. I swear I remember that. And, you know, they said, we're not ready. We can't do that. I don't, I don't want to. I never, and the police came to see us at, the, um, at the, uh, this club in New York, uh, the Ritz. Nice guys, you know, but it's just that, that connection never happened either. <laughs> now, now, you had said earlier that, uh, that in some ways, and maybe it was from the movie, maybe it's what we talked about earlier, but you said that in some ways um, Robin was trying to fit into that sort of like punk uh, genre. And um, so there's one song that I that I you had sent to me that I listened to last night and Psychotic Disorders. Oh. And I'm there, like the first thing I thought of, I just wrote a note and I go, reminds me of uh, Lana Lovitch because oh. uh, it's because it's, you know, right. crazy yeah. and it's it's a good song, it's but good it's song. crazy. And it's like it sounds like that was built for MTV, built for. Like, you know, new wave. I, I mean, I, it, it wasn't punk, obviously, but it was like a new wave kind of a thing. And it was, it's kind of out there. So it's, it's, it's a great song, though. I mean. It's a great song, but that was the kind of song that our manager would drive him up a wall because he wouldn't know what to do with that song. He would say, this is, you know, you can't do a song like that. You know, he had another one called They Died in Germany. Um, she had some real crazy-ass songs. That's the, the one I, version of uh, Psychotic Disorders I gave you was the one that was done for an album that we did, you know, the later in like the 2000s. And um, I just love the drum fills. It was so much fun to play. Oh, yeah. And uh, there's a lot going on in that. A one. lot going on. And it's crazy. And um, it's the opposite of what management would have hoped she was doing to create an image. Whereas, actually, by your saying that right now, I'm thinking if somebody had been really on top of it and said, that's like Lena Lovitch. Let's put that on on TV. That might have been a whole other kettle of worms. Yep. The version you, that you know, maybe you'll be playing or something like that is a lot, uh, as crazy as it is, it's a lot more neatened up than some of the original versions of it, which were like you know, garbage cans rolling down the stairs. Totally, total insanity. And we had a lot of songs like that that were completely insane. They you know, never found their way into a record? No, or? no. There's a few on our three CD collection that came out a couple of years ago. Some of those are on there. Because that's the Actually, Psychotic Disorders isn't even on. I gave you that because that's not even on that three CD collection. Okay. And I, I, just, want, I just love that song. It's so unhinged. It's totally unhinged. And it's, <laughs> but it's like I said, it's a, it's a really interesting song. It's yeah, yeah. Definitely interesting. Keep rolling, keep rolling. Wolf Alice, yeah, yeah. What do you mean you're not coming? Well, that's a bit selfish, isn't it? What? No, just forget it, man.
and that's that part of she believes that you know I mean she believes part of her is like ready to go insane at any time she's she's like that she's on the edge all the time <laughs> uh, well the other thing is is it's really obvious from the film that it may not be obvious to other people who just like knew the chart busters uh, Robin Lane and the chart busters is like she's really prolific too yeah, I mean, she's someone that like when I watch that movie, and they're like, "This woman just cranks this stuff out all the time," right. and it's what she does. It's sort of like back in the day, back in the '30s and '40s, they had guys who did nothing but write songs, you know. Right. And right. it's like that's what she sort of reminded me when I was watching that movie last night. Well, yeah, it's it's good that you say that because one of the reasons for me to make the movie, first, I wanted to create a good narrative structure, you know, a rise and fall and a comeback. Um, I wanted to do something like that, and my wife suggested, what about Robin? And I went, never, no, I can't revisit all that <laughs> stuff. And then I thought about it, and I had seen a couple of rock documentaries. Nothing was out like this at all. There were no rock documentaries about women, and very few rock documentaries at all. And I said, well, I want to be one of the first this people This is 2008 this. you made this? Uh, might, no, 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 that was, that was when you made Radical Gestures. Um, so it was later than that then, right? Yeah. Did I make it after? I made it right after Radical Jesters. Okay. So maybe 2010. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, there was uh, there were there were a few of them, and I and I saw that this is going to be a um, I don't know if you want to call it a genre, but there's going to be a lot of biographical films about this generation, and and I thought well, Robbins is a really good example of first of all a woman in the business. Second of all, the business in general, where it, it started and where it went to and how it affected her career. And then third is what you just said. She deserves to have more recognition for her skill as an artist. She's an amazing singer and an amazing songwriter. Oh, she's a great singer. And she just didn't, um, didn't get the payoff that she, I don't know, deserved is the right word or what the right word is. But, and I've worked with so many people like that. You know, I'm just a drummer. Who, nobody cares what happens to me, you know. I just, I'm just there. But, but you know, I've worked with so many people who were just enormously talented, and they never get their due. And I, and I thought that was, that's another reason why that story should be out there. So people see that, it's, it's the passion and and, the focus you bring to your career, and and the self satisfaction you have in doing what you do that will really matter in the end. You know, we're not that different in age. And, and that's what you're going to look back on, not whether or not everybody worshipped you or you were on MTV or you sold a million records or you live in a mansion. That shit's not going to matter in the end. And I, th I wanted to show that in this film, that, that there's other things that can bring value to your career as an artist. Right. And I don't know any other kind of career, not to say I'm a great artist, but I just don't know anything but the arts. And so it takes a certain amount of imagination and intuition and a little bit of courage, and some really good connections, and staying friends with people to, to make that work out for you when you have a career, or you're looking for a career in the arts of any kind. You know, When I was first playing music, you couldn't be an actor and a musician. It's just the two things weren't working together. Right. Now that's the thing to do, and I can't seem to be pulling it off anymore <laughs> but you know a little bit but i mean when you when you look at one of the one of the reasons uh, we were talking earlier i like to listen to college radio is i hear such a wide range of like really talented people 
that occasionally I'll pick up on that I'll get a record, I'll go to see them in a show. There was a woman, I like Americana music, and so there was a woman named Amanda Ann Platt and the um, Honeycutters. And it's like, I heard a couple of songs with them. I went and I showed up. I go, oh my God, this girl's amazing. Yeah. Why isn't she famous? Right. And she's not like classically pretty or anything like that. So mm -hmm. maybe that has something to do with it. But what a great songwriter. And they're like, I mean, just on a local, you and I were talking before um, before the show about uh, uh, Emily Grogan. I've seen Emily Grogan a couple of times who played with uh, Asa Brebner that's played with you guys. And I saw her a couple of times. I go, why isn't this woman famous? I mean, she's got a lot of the... Uh, ingredients. I mean, she's a really good songwriter. She's a really good guitarist. She's very attractive, you know. And it's like, why didn't she like end up doing? I mean, it's like, and there's a random. But the other thing that people don't understand, you can. Uh, I just finished the thought, is that the people that I know that play music, play music because they love doing it. A lot of the guys. I mean, I play in a band. I've been playing for like 30 years with the same people in that cover band that we have. And it's like, we just love getting together. The first thing, as soon as the Vaccine happened. The guy who plays guitar with me, with that I play with, just says, "We got to do something." You know, we got to do something. Everybody just wants to get out and do it. I mean, I don't think you're a musician to get. I don't think people become musicians to get rich. Generally, I think they get because it's what they like doing. And then you look at that whole community, the people that you've been involved with forever, and it's like I don't know. You, if you want to talk about that, that'd be interesting. <laughs> well, I think I think. Um Early on, I think people did want to do it to get rich. And I think they wanted to do it to be famous. And I think there was always the dream that that would happen. I don't think that dream is there necessarily anymore. Before, there, was this, there were fewer bands. And, and so there was a better chance <laughs> that maybe you'd end up in Boston or the cars because you knew the right people and you were in the right place at the right time. The chances were decent. I mean, in some my case, maybe that happened a few times. Um, but uh, so I think it was less realistic then. And I think some of the people that made it okay, we've talked about this too, never quite recovered from the semi-fame they had <laughs> and keep expecting, where where is the recognition I needed for having achieved a little something in 1984 or something like that? And some people never it grow out of that either. They don't. And, it, it's that, and that's why I say it really has to be about finding what it is in you that is bringing the satisfaction to that or making it an adventure for you. Nowadays, I think, um, yeah, you can, you can discover great artists out there, but record companies aren't supporting you anymore. Um, there's no you know, record album sales. What does that mean anymore? Nothing. You get like, I've seen some of the royalty checks from Spotify for like, Dennis Brennan will bring it to the dressing room. Hey, I got my Spotify check. It's like, you know, 54 cents. Yeah. You know, I mean, you have to sell millions, millions of views. So it's not going to happen. The only way you can really do it is playing live or get in a movie. And it's pretty much always been that way. There was a short period of time, a short period of time from maybe the advent of the Beatles through maybe the mid-90s when you record companies would support you. And they even had A&R guys, artists in repertoire, who would help you develop that image, find you the songs. And there was our, our tours were supported by Fleetwood Mac, essentially. You know, the money they made went into our tours. Right. But that stuff doesn't happen anymore. Everybody's more desperate. So now it's the way it maybe realistically always was. You want to play music? Okay. 
have your day job and go off and tour for a while. Um, I mean, there are people um, certainly in town who can maybe do enough sessions, but in a place like Boston, good luck. Yeah. I mean, everybody can't be Duke, you know, Levine. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, who can just do a lot of sessions or, you know, there's a few drummers I know who can do that, I suppose. Um, but that's a big risk and you're not going to get rich. Uh, so I saw that early on um, that I, I needed to keep meaning in my life. I think I was in Paris with Laverne Baker, with Barry Marshall, who you interviewed on it. Yep. Look, and I told you this earlier. I was looking around the swimming pool going, wow, this is uh, this is the... This is great. Paris and clubs and smoking cigarettes and, you know, art museums, whatever I want to do. But I do not want to be doing this for forever. Yeah. So what's next? And take that next step. And Percussion! Little Timmy! A lot of people don't take that next step soon enough. Soon enough. Now I think you have to. You know, everybody's kind of got to have that. That second. But you job. must have. In the, I, I'm. You, I'm not, I shouldn't say you must have. But so when you get your first, you get an MTV hit. You guys are touring. You you do national tours. You uh, tour in the country, and you know you get great radio play around here. Anyway, I don't know what it looks like on a national. But you must have been thinking at some point that like. Hey, Robin Lane and the Charmer. This is this is the ticket. This is what's going to happen. We could, yeah. and you plus with you know, Robin is not. I mean, she's someone who had a talent that would just keep producing stuff. So, after you did the first album, and then you tour, and the first album did really well, and so what happens from there? I mean, do you? I know you did other albums after that, but I mean, what happened? I mean, so you go out, you start touring, you start. Did you think at that point that you might like this might be my ticket? This might be my... Yeah, I, I just don't know what that ticket is supposed to purchase. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really don't. What does the ticket get you? It gets you a tour. It gets you a salary. But it's just like any job. Well, that's a sober kind of way of looking at it. But right. like the people that you were just talking about, we're not looking at that that way at all. It's like, wouldn't you think that there's a certain amount of people out there that are saying like, here we go. Okay, we could do this for the next 10 years. Just keep touring, keep making records and, you know, and... Well, I suppose if we had, I would have done that. Yeah. But um, Robin had a baby. Yep. And the second record um, didn't have a hit on it, I guess. And what was the name of that record? Uh, Imitation Life. Okay.
It's a much better production, I think. Gary Lyons, who had been assistant uh, engineer, I think, for Queen under Tom, Roy Thomas Baker, uh, knew how to create a good, dense sound. And, and I thought, you know, that, that was terrific. And we were, actually, we were recording that uh, and staying a couple of blocks away from um, the Dakota when Lennon was shot. So I always remember when that record oh was being God. done and that New York just shut down. And everything sort of changed then. And another change was um, MTV, because we had this, that early song on MTV, music became about creating an image. You had to have an image. You had to have a strong image. And the death of Lennon put a, a weird... Everything got ugly for a little while. That's 1981, right? Yeah, I think it was, yeah. yeah. And so then we didn't renew our contract, and that was just it. And um, so... Um, and then Robin had the baby and broke up with her boyfriend. And so that, that was it. That was the end of the chart process for yeah. that, in that incarnation. And then our as incarnation. A, we kept playing, and concern. I played with Asa, continued to play with Asa. We had another band and another yeah. band. Uh, and, I, and at that point, I would have to, my career, decide do I go to New York or Los Angeles and do something else? But I, there were so many other things I wanted to do. So um, to survive, I joined a wedding band. Um, <laughs> It was really good, though. Really? Yeah. I had never played in a wedding band. I'd never been to a wedding, believe it or not. I didn't know about... How's that the, possible? I don't know. How can you my be parents, My parents old? eloped. I eloped. Oh. I never went to one of these things where you have pre-dinners and bridesmaids and speeches and toasts. And, and so it was actually really fascinating to do it for a little... With a bunch of Berkeley people. And Kevin Barry, you know, the guitar player who plays with... Dennis Brennan and everybody in the world, absolutely amazing guitar player. He was in the band for a while. So we, we all did that, and I guess that was repaying my dues for a few years. Uh, but then I, I said, okay, I, I can't, you know, this is. So I was in, talking about the Rat, so I was in seven bands for a while. One of them was Barry Marshall. The Chartbusters were still playing. The band that I'd forgotten I had put together, a band called The Young Rationals and a band called Vast Deferens. Um, and there, I think, are a couple of others. And I would book four of them at the Rat in a night and just take money f from all of them. Wow. So I could keep my drums set up, not have to move on and off, and I could get paid four times. <laughs> That's a hell of a workout, isn't it? No, that wasn't that hard. Playing drums is not as hard as it looks. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I saw you some, of the, some of the clips. You had huge guns. I mean. Yeah, I know. Well, that's because I never stopped playing, I guess, but it didn't wasn't physically hard if you play right. Oh, okay. You know, I mean, it was a sprint spinning, but he's 70 years old and he plays for two and a half hours. Charlie Watts. Yeah. Charlie <laughs> Watts is pretty funny. He's just, <laughs> and then they trigger that stuff big time. Uh, but, but, you know, he's great. So, you know, so that's entirely possible. But, um, yeah. So what was the original question there? <laughs> I forget. So, yeah, so, yeah. We, so but one thing, so we, we're probably coming towards the end of our uh, time here. But so... By playing the, the band The Time Forgot, which you guys, I mean, obviously everybody went on pause. You got, are you guys going to get back together and start playing oh, some more gigs? Yeah. Or? Well, you know, after um, I realized that I needed to do something, in the, and I said, well, I'll be in seven bands. Let's see if it, what it pays off. If it doesn't, let me go finish my undergraduate degree. I'll keep, and, but I need something to support it. I got out of the car one day, and I said to my wife, I got a name for a band, The Band The Time Forgot. She goes, oh, that's good. What would you do with it? And I go... There's no 60s covers bands. I, I'll do that with all the best guys I know who also need to be doing other things and not relying solely on 
a great career break that's going to make you for the rest of your life. And love playing. Let's face it. Oh, well, that's the given. That's what I'm saying. That's yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's yeah. it's not about the money. It's nice to you know get paid. Oh, but, absolutely. Yeah. I had a banker one time when I was went in for a loan. It was an African guy, and and he said uh, he said, "Man, you do this uh, acting, and uh, you have the uh, uh, this music, and you're doing writing, uh, 
uh, you've been married for a long time. How? What is the secret to this happiness in America? And I, without pause, I said, <laughs> don't try to make money. <laughs> this just blows the whole deal. If that's what you're after, you know, forget it. You know. That's so. anti-American dream, Tim. <laughs> you have to be anti-American <laughs> dream, yeah. And be political and be a humanist, you know. Yeah. So that what you're doing, you're doing it because you like to be connecting to people. You know, you know that as an actor and a writer, a musician. You know, you yourself know that that's really, it's connecting. But it's, it's, not, it's not about pay attention to me necessarily. It's about connecting to interesting things, about having an adventure. You know. I was talking to a friend so, of mine the other day, and we were talking about getting older and uh, and retiring or whatever. I'm not going to be able to retire. Luckily, I'm a writer, so I don't, I don't have to break bricks in the sun or anything like that. But we were talking. And said, there was a thing where somebody said, um, nobody ever, when they were on their deathbed, said, geez, I wish I worked more. Yeah, you know? Right, yeah. And it's the truth. Yeah. And if you enjoy what you're doing, and obviously you've been doing that for a long time, so... Yeah, but I'll tell you the writing thing that we we do now. I mean, you're really a writer. I'm a I'm a pretend writer that keeps trying, keeps trying. It's agony. Oh, so it's... I I've got to make myself suffer. I practice every day, new skills. I write all the time. I memorize monologues so I try to keep some acting fresh. You know, I I have to suffer. I have to have guilt and agony a little bit all the time, because life is too good. <laughs> I need to be doing more. Yeah. But I, but but anyway, I'll just say the last last thing was uh, so when I did that wedding band, I was called by another group called the Young Rationals, and yep. they said, "Do you want to be in this band? You probably don't because you're like this guy from Robin Lee, Chartbusters." They go, "Trust me, you guys, I'm just a drummer." So I went and played with those guys, and they were fabulous. And what was it? Was it original material? Or was yeah, it... all original material. So they're really cerebral, right? Cerebral, carefully arranged. Richard Gates was the bass player who now. Plays with everybody. Um, we've been working together now for almost 40 years, Richard. One of the finest people I've ever known. And uh, Steve Stone, who has a video production company and is a painter and a brilliant songwriter. He sang and wrote all the songs. So it had this that consistency. And then Sheldon Mirowitz, uh, an amazing, amazing, amazing guitar player who runs the Berkeley Silent Film Orchestra and teaches at Berkeley now and also does uh, film composing. So he's an incredible talent. And that band was just, that was it. For me, this is, this is the band I've been waiting for at this point in my life that should really cut through everything. And I realized it's not going to happen because we don't have the image that Boston wants. We're not blues and rock-based. We're steely Danish. Hmm. And, um, and we don't have a manager. And we don't have a producer that knows how to do us, you know, do it. Who's going to take us on that ride. And there were so many things including age. We weren't even that old at that point, maybe 35, maybe 40. And uh, I thought, okay, so this is where it's at. This is the best band I can imagine. It's not going to work out. Let's keep it going. Let's keep the band that Tom forgot going, which is why I started the band in the first place, get the satisfaction, and then have some other career offshoots. And that's what happened. What's the cut we should hear from uh, the Young Rationals? Uh, we want to play again. <laughs> you know, we're still in touch with all the guys. But, they're all but, healthy. But what, uh, do, you, do you have something on uh, that we can, you can give us that we can play for our listeners? I, I think I gave you a song. Okay, cool. Yeah, I thought I saw that on the list. Yeah, and there's, uh, it's all, actually, the Young Rationals, all our, uh, most of our stuff is on uh, Spotify. Okay. Yeah. Well, but what yeah. cut, if somebody said, if you, what, what, what would you want somebody to hear so they know what the Young Rationals are all about? Oh, go to YouTube. The, uh, the songwriter did one called Worlds Collide. 
Uh, that's up with a really stupid video, a sort of mock stupid video. And then one that I directed called um, Evidence. That's a mock uh, story of a, of a film noir murder set to the lyrics of the song, which is also just a great song. Those two are really fun, and they have a visual attached to them this, at the same time, yeah. Okay. <laughs> 
Thanks for coming on to Rat Tales, Tim. Wow. I really you appreciate know, like it. You said, I it told you, by, it would it? zip right by. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, it was great to have you, and uh, thanks a lot. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd like to talk about my sex life a little bit, if I could. <laughs> I don't know how much time you <laughs> That'll have. That'll be in the next episode. Uh, next episode. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, it was good. Rat Tales is produced and directed by Lenny Scaletta and Mike Hoban, with a huge thanks to Medford Community Media in beautiful downtown Medford, Massachusetts.